What is the best technique for awakening? Well, first we have to define what awakening actually is. When I talk about awakening, I'm talking about a transformation at the identity level, not an experience that an identity has and collects that experience and reflects on that experience. That's not awakening. I also don't mean a mystical experience. Mystical experiences seem to penetrate the usual day-to-day -day experience, the usual way we experience life, the world, ourselves. They transcend that experience. So it's an expansive type of experience. It's a profound experience, but it's an experience. It's not a transformation at the identity level. So when I'm talking about awakening in this context, I'm talking about a transformation at the identity level. So then how do I come upon this information? Well, going through it myself, primarily, and then working with a lot of other people who are going through the process of awakening or have gone through the process of awakening and observing, paying close attention to what it is that actually shifts, changes, and what leads up to that. Also, many, many years of living on the other side of that transformation, on the other side of the deconstruction of identity, you learn a lot. You learn it at a very intuitive level, an instinctual level. You don't learn it at an intellectual level, although it can manifest as intellectual knowledge as well. So having spent many years on the other side of this very profound, very fundamental, the most fundamental transformation possible has given me insights. And so this video really is just a summary of what I've seen, what I've seen that works, what I've seen that doesn't work as well, what I've seen that holds people up. And I'm going to conclude the video with a simple statement of what I see as the most potent, effective method or technique for awakening. So first of all, I want to address some areas that are commonly misunderstood in reference to awakening. One area is tradition. So it's not uncommon that we relate awakening or enlightenment to a certain tradition, perhaps Buddhism, perhaps Hinduism, perhaps Advaita Vedanta, or perhaps one school of Buddhism or one sect of Buddhism, such as Zen or Theravadan Buddhism or Dzogchen. So all of these traditions have a very rich history of beings who went through this transformation at the most fundamental level. And a lot of the doctrine that's written and transmitted generation to generation in these different traditions do point to methods, to truths that are beyond the conceptual truths. So you can find in these rich traditions a lot of pointers 
and even awake people today. But, and this is a big but, I see an overly fixated belief that being part of a tradition or merely being part of a tradition is enough to wake you up. And this is a big mistake. It's simply not true. And I know this will upset some people to hear this, but in my experience, it's just not true. Being part of a group is not what wakes you up. No matter how rich the tradition that supports that group is, in fact, certain group dynamics, group think, can actually be a hindrance, just like any interhuman dynamics can be a hindrance to awakening. Why? Well, that's for another video, but largely we keep ourselves asleep through our beliefs about ourselves, about being a person or a human, and about others, including spiritual beliefs about others. So often being part of a tradition will tempt us to identify with that group or that tradition. And I've seen this displayed in very interesting ways. Some very vocal people, very competitive people about their tradition, competitive about their tradition being the most intact or the most authentic tradition. And it smacks of ego, to be honest, but they often overlook this. This, of course, is not the rule. It's probably more like the exception. But anyone who has a history of interacting with groups, spiritual groups, traditions, etc., knows what this is and has seen it. And that's a big um, potential downside to expecting the tradition itself or the group to wake you up. So be cautious of this. It's always on you, and it's always a solitary journey. The group may have good pointers. If you're lucky, you may interact with a liberated or awakened teacher in the group, but often you won't. And you have some pointers to go on, some words from ancient masters, and some group support, some sangha, other people to meditate with for prolonged periods. Those are of value, but a lot of what else comes with these groups, including your own idea about being a member of the group, can be a major hindrance, so be aware of that. The second area I wanted to talk about is meditation. I personally love to meditate. I meditate frequently. I meditate for weeks at a time. I have meditated for many, many years. It was during meditation that I had my initial shift. And with all that said, I have to caution you that expecting meditation alone to wake you up is a mistake. The reason is simple. There are many people who have meditated for decades and have not had an awakening. Many, the vast majority of people who have meditated for decades have not had an awakening. Many have, but probably many more haven't. So similar to the tradition issue, the belief that because I use a certain technique, because I learned to meditate from a certain group who 
seems to tell me that they taught me the best, most potent type of meditation, best technique, best whatever. That belief itself can stabilize the identity, can stabilize the ego. And then if you're in a group of people who think that way, act that way, behave that way, communicate that way, it can be a very strong reinforcement of a collective or group ego. And the sort of most ironic and worst version of this is when you think you're enlightened based on that, based on what group you've associated with or how long you've meditated or how many states of meditation you've achieved or how many techniques you've learned, etc. So again, I know this is something that will be uncomfortable for some people to hear, but others will get it. I didn't know this for four years while meditating. I loved meditation for four years before awakening, but it was very superficial compared to what came after awakening. And I didn't realize it. I just knew it felt good. It was a break or a reprieve from the suffering. I didn't know there was a different way to go directly into what it was I wanted to address. Once I learned that, once I figured that out, it didn't take long. And again, it was during meditation, but it didn't have to be. Often it's outside of meditation that these shifts occur. And actually, even though the moment of the shift for me was during meditation, the handful of days before that, where it was a, almost a nearly constant inquiry process that I might talk about a little bit later in this video, um, that really was what culminated in, in that one moment. So meditation's great. I think everyone should do it if they feel inclined, but don't expect it to wake you up. It's not the only factor, and it's definitely not the most important factor. So traditions, meditation are two areas I see people have a sort of misconception about as relates to awakening. Those two, I would say, are probably the biggest um, misconceptions in, in the sort of spiritual world. There's other potential pitfalls. Believing that spirituality is here to give you everything you want, law of attraction type of thinking and so forth. I'm not saying that there's no value to that, if there may be value to that for you. When it comes to awakening, it's a big misconception. We're not trying to wake up to get everything we think we want. We're waking up because we realize that getting what we want doesn't actually lead to satisfaction. This leads me to a discussion of what it is that actually works, a discussion of the best technique or method for awakening. And it's actually a combination of things. I could summarize it with one word or term, but it's more helpful to break it down a bit. These are the components I see line up in people right before they wake up or as they're waking up. So the first one is a recognition of suffering. I've talked about this in many videos, but I want to be very specific about what I mean by suffering here. That is a general sense of dissatisfaction, a general sense that something isn't quite right with the way you're experiencing life. Simply that. It's not having a certain number of tragedies or traumas in your life. It's not a psychological thing, although depression and anxiety often come with this. 
It's really an acknowledgement of the sense that something about the way you're experiencing life and yourself and reality, the world, others, all of it, is just unsatisfying in some kind of constant way. Once you realize this, and this can be a hard thing to realize because it feels very hopeless, right? If all the things I've learned from my parents, society, school, books, if all of that is more of the same, is more of the problem itself, it's really disheartening, right? Well, until you hear about this possibility, it is very disheartening. But this possibility is to address the unsatisfactoriness itself directly by investigating it directly. That's the whole point of this. That's what we're talking about. That's why suffering is very, very important in this process. It's not comfortable, it's inherently uncomfortable, but that inherent discomfort is magic because it forces you to look, it forces you to look where you don't want to look. It forces you to look sometimes in the last place you would ever even think of looking, but it forces you to look in the right place inwardly toward what you are taking yourself to be, toward identity, that's where you have to look. As I stated at the beginning of the video, until you're engaging the identity structure itself, it's just a lot of experiences. They can be wild and wacky, fun, psychedelic, mind-altering experiences, mystical. They can be all kinds of experiences and those are fine. But this is a very direct investigation of the nature of identity itself. Who are you? What are you? This is what we're engaging. So the first part is an acknowledgement of suffering. It sometimes comes in the form of just realizing that the usual beliefs we have about what make us happy don't work, or they don't sufficiently work. So relationship. You may find that perfect relationship, the perfect partner, the romantic connection you've always wanted, and you just realize at some point, this is not what it's cracked up to be. It's not a happily ever after experience. It may have some very positive aspects and it may have some very negative aspects, but it's not deeply, deeply and profoundly satisfying in the way that you hoped it would be, right? This is the same with work, jobs, occupations, status, hobbies, having the perfect body, being stronger, faster, smarter, educated, getting the degrees, all of it. Getting the family, having kids, right? You followed the plan, you heard the promises, and it didn't deliver the deep, thoroughgoing peace and satisfaction you were hoping it would have. That's what I mean. That's the recognition of suffering or unsatisfactoriness or something just feels off about life. That's one component. Another component is recognizing the nature of thought, the nature of doubt, and seeing that they are the same thing. Often when we start to feel the suffering, that hopelessness that comes with it is sort of clothed in a kind of doubt. There's so much doubt intrinsic to what we take ourselves to be. Because what we take ourselves to be is a collection of thoughts about the future, when I get there, when I succeed, seeking, 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 grasping, hoping, wishing, 
delaying gratification over and over and over. That living in the false world of the future and then creating this imaginary false future to try to make ourselves feel better becomes very uncomfortable if you're paying attention. Very uncomfortable. So all that seeking, recognizing it just doesn't work. This ties into the first aspect I pointed to, the suffering, the unsatisfactoriness. So recognizing this isn't working. I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy. And all of the beliefs I have about what's going to make me happy have this sort of doubt tone to them. What I take myself to be feels like doubt, right? Some people are very good at recognizing this. Other people, not so much. But some people will say, I have so much self-doubt. That's actually a really good thing to recognize because if you don't recognize it, and yet our mind identified and constantly seeking, then there's a layer of avoidance or inauthenticity that's operating that you're not recognizing likely. Because when we start to experience the identity structure as such, we experience it laden with doubt, which is also a good thing because the doubt is saying something's not right here. There's a good reason you're doubting the identity structure. There's a good reason you're doubting yourself as you take yourself to be the cognitive aspect of you. A very good reason because it's essentially an illusion or a distortion or a reflection. So that doubt, recognizing doubt, feeling doubt and recognizing that doubt is a thought or a series of thoughts, thoughts about me, thoughts about what I need. Why do I need? Because I doubt that I'm okay the way I am. Seeing that that's an uncomfortable, inherently uncomfortable way of thinking, perceiving yourself, and identifying. All of this really starts to set the fire inside you for awakening. The next thing is a curiosity that arises. This curiosity is very interesting. It's not an intellectual curiosity. It's a curiosity that says, well, if what I take myself to be is an illusion and it's laden with doubt and doubt is nothing but thought, what am I really? Or what's really happening here? What's really going on here? If those thoughts aren't me and the doubt is thought and what I'm identifying with is doubt and the suffering is telling me that more seeking is not the answer in thought in the future that doesn't exist. All of that will culminate in this sense of like, well, how in the heck do I look anywhere else? How do I not look into the future? How do I not look into thought? How do I not look into doubt in this moment for the answers? How do I not look into the memories? How do I not look into the imagined future? Where else can I look? How else can I look? That's really, really good inquiry. That's the root of inquiry. You're becoming curious about, well, what the hell else is here then? If the doubts are an illusion, the beliefs about myself and others are illusions. The thoughts are essentially reflections coming and going, changing all the time and are uncomfortable. How can I look differently? How can I inquire differently? 
that's the kind of curiosity that starts reorienting your interest, your attention, your instincts inwardly. We'll say inwardly here, but not into the future, not into thoughts, not into beliefs, not into the unending project of trying to convince yourself and others that you're happy when you're not. If you don't give all of that stuff attention, where does your attention go? It's a really, really good question. Kind of leads you to a sort of mystery. Yeah. So the next component and understand all of these are tied together very intimately. The next component is recognizing the unknown, the mystery right here. It is a mystery because You've already realized the thoughts aren't going to help. You've realized the doubt is a thought. You've realized the beliefs about yourself, the past, the future are unsatisfying. All of that is not helpful. And yet something's here. Something's awake, aware, conscious right now. But if you label it, that's a thought. So that's not helpful. Where are you going to go? This kind of curiosity now is culminating in an inquiry, a looking. You may be doing it right now. If you're primed for this right now, that looking is already happening. Where can it look? Where's the only place it can look? That's not a thought. This is it. You don't need anything more than this. So you stop here. The investigation is the awareness of it. The investigation is the consciousness of consciousness, the knowing of knowingness without any objects right now. Now, I'm gonna name two other components. Again, all interrelated. These are all interrelated aspects. One is simply instinct. This varies. Some people seem to have a stronger version of this than others at this time in the, in the process or at this point in the process. The instinct is, it just knows where to go. There's something in you that just knows where to go. I'm not gonna say it's a place or somewhere aside from where you are right now, but I'm also not gonna say it's right now or right where you are because that can easily become a thought. But there is an instinct in you that if these other components have been touched on, have come online, then there's an instinct here that often just knows where to go. So sometimes all I have to tell people is trust your instinct. It's always known where to go. This whole lifetime, it's been waiting to go there, waiting to, waiting for you to trust it so fully that you can do the last thing, which is let go. It's not a letting go you can do consciously, exactly. Certainly not cognitively but it is something being let go of or a major, major deep letting go. Surrender perhaps to this process. Realizing that nothing you've done up to this point has really worked. Even the spiritual stuff, even the awakening stuff, you struggled with yourself all along because what you've been taking yourself to be is a bunch of thoughts, a bunch of beliefs, and that doesn't work. And now you know it. And your instinct 
which is not based on identity, by the way. When I say instinct, it's not your identity. It's not a word defined instinct. It's not a concept defined instinct. It's energetic. It's deep. It's beyond you, beyond the self, beyond the thoughts, and the surrender completely beyond you, beyond form, beyond this lifetime, beyond the world, beyond inside and outside, beyond awake and asleep. You just let it take you from this point on. <laughs>